Seems like Bryce is really excited about that baptism class. What do you think? Well, good morning again. Welcome to TBA. My name is Brian Legg. I'm part of our lead pastor team here. Um, For those of you who came today thinking that I spoke last week and you get to hear somebody different this week, I'm sorry, but we're just kind of changing it up and trying to keep you on your toes this week. Um, Brandon, as always, great job on the welcome video this morning. Appreciate you doing that. I have to admit, I was just a little bit disappointed that there was no shooting and no blowing stuff up this week like last week because I thought we had really turned a corner and were kind of becoming that redneck church for me, and I guess not. But at least nobody's scared to go to next steps today, so we, we got that going for us. But in all seriousness, Brandon, thanks for doing that. It's always fun, kind of helps to keep us engaged in what's going on. So I wonder, how many of you have ever played the game, and usually this is done like in a small group setting or or maybe just kind of a a group of people that get together, the game Two Truths and a Lie. You ever played that? It's kind of an icebreaker type of thing. You go around the circle, around the room, and you share three statements about yourself, two of which are supposed to be true and one that is not so much. And then everybody has to kind of figure out, okay, well, which statement was not true about that person? It's a good way to get to know people. So as I was reading through our passage for this week, that was the thought that kept coming to my my mind. And I can't even explain why, because I'm not going to talk anything about that game. But here's the thought that kind of triggered out of it. As I read through the passage, this thing kept coming back to me that was two faiths and a folly. And I think you'll kind of see where that goes as I jump into the story this morning. So we're continuing in our series on Mark, and uh, last week we explored five verses of Mark chapter 4, and when I got home last week, one of my daughters complained that I spoke too long, and I said, well, I've got really bad news for you, because that was five verses last week, and this week we're going to span two chapters, and it's 28 verses, so I hope you don't want to go to lunch anytime soon, is all I can say. Anyway, we will get through it kind of quickly, but before we dive into it, I do want to read the full passage, because I want you to have good context of these stories as we dive into them this morning. So if you want to follow along with me, we're starting in Mark chapter 5 with verse 21. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. The heading in my Bible says, Jesus heals in response to faith. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake, where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. I mean, how can you ask, Who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, Your daughter is dead. There is no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. 
He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and then he told them to give her something to eat. Now we go on into chapter 6, and the title here is Jesus Rejected in Nazareth, and you'll see how the story begins to change. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. So, let me try to give you a little bit of context of this passage. We've skipped ahead a little bit in in Mark from last week. So last week we were exploring those four key sayings of Jesus, things that were kind of sandwiched in between some parables. And the setting was that Jesus was standing on the side of the Sea of Galilee teaching a crowd of people. And so he's sharing all these different parables and stories and kind of walking them on a journey, teaching. And he gets towards the end of the day, and it tells us that as evening comes, he decides to cross the lake and leaves the crowd. He's been teaching all day, so you can only imagine he's exhausted at this point. He's been giving a lot of himself. And so they start out across the lake as Jesus and his disciples in the boat. And if you remember, there's this huge storm that rolls in on the lake. And it says that even the experienced fishermen in the boat, those who were used to being on the sea, those who were used to handling a boat, being in storms, they were scared for their life. The storm rolls in. You can just imagine the thunder and the lightning and the big waves and the wind and everything happening. And where do you find Jesus? Jesus has fallen asleep in the front of the boat. He's exhausted. He's been teaching all day on the side of the sea. And here he is asleep, and his disciples go and wake him up. And in that moment, he stands up, and he says, To the wind and the waves, be still. And it quits. Now, we live in Florida. There's lots of thunderstorms that roll through here. I just wonder, how many of you can walk out back and go, Be still, and it all stops? Doesn't happen, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. He says, Be still, and the waves calm, and the wind stops, and the rain stops. It goes on, they come to the shore, and Jesus is met by a demon-possessed man that lives there in the cemetery, and it it describes him as a man that nobody can contain. They've tried to bind him with chains and with shackles and all of these different things to, to hold him back, and they can't do it. He keeps breaking the chains and breaking the shackles, and he comes to meet Jesus as they get off the boat, and Jesus ends up casting the demon out of him. And if you remember the story, he asked for the name, and the demon says, I am legion because we are many. And Jesus casts the demons into the pigs, and the pigs run down the mountain and into the sea, and they drown. And so here again is another miraculous story of Jesus casting the demons out and sending them into the sea to drown. Then Jesus gets back in the boat, and he goes back across the lake to yet another crowd. This poor guy can't get any rest at all, can he? He falls asleep in the boat. His disciples wake him up so that he can calm the storm. They pull ashore. He casts out a demon from a guy. He gets back in the boat, goes back across. Here's another crowd waiting on him. And that's where we pick up our story today. Now, keep in mind, he's just performed two amazing miracles. 
He shows his power over nature, the wind and the waves. He shows his power over the demons. And then as we just read in today's story, you're going to see how he shows his power over sickness and even over death. And I think Mark is basically using this to help us understand that Jesus is all-powerful over everything that we might ever face in our lives. And that's really, really important. And I want you to hold on to that. But it's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on instead is I want to focus on the human response that we see to Jesus within today's story. And we're going to see this illustrated in three very different ways. So pick up with me. This is in verse 21 of chapter 5 where we started. Jesus arrives on the seashore and he arrives with this crowd of people. But this time there's this guy that pushes through the crowd to come see Jesus. And he, you can just tell he wants Jesus' undivided attention. And all we really get in the scripture is that his name is Jairus, and he's the leader of the synagogue. And if you're anything like me, you, you hear that or you read across that and you go, okay, well, he was like the local pastor in the town, right? You know, the leader of the synagogue, and he's coming to Jesus. That's kind of true, but it's, it's really a lot deeper than that. See, the synagogue in that day and time was like the epicenter of all activity, whether it was government or business or religious activity. And the leader of the synagogue may not even be the primary teacher that you would think of, but instead they were the ones that were basically administering everything. They were setting up the schedule and taking care of everything and arranging all the details. This was a very, very important man. He was a respected leader in all areas. He was the local pastor. He was the mayor. He was the most respected businessman. You name it, he probably had it. And this was one of those guys that everybody knew And his life would have constantly been under a microscope, so to speak. He was in the limelight. People knew who he was, knew what he was doing. They were watching him, paying attention to him. And if you remember anything about respected men in this day and age, there were a couple things that they never did. One, they never ran because that was shameful. And they would never throw themselves at the feet of somebody else because that was a position of humiliation or shame, especially for a religious leader. And as we read across this, I don't know that Jairus specifically ran, but... I would kind of guess that he probably did. I mean, if you put it in the context of the story, his daughter's dying. He's in desperate need of Jesus to come and heal his daughter. This is his last chance, and he's trying to push through the crowd to get to her. I can only imagine he was probably running to get there. You know, you don't want to leave your daughter's side for very long when she's in that condition. But what we do know for sure is the story tells us he threw himself at Jesus' feet, asking Jesus to come. Think about that for a second. A position of desperation, a position of humility, complete embarrassment, shame as a religious leader. But I don't think he's worried about what people think. I don't think he's worried about how this is going to affect his status or his job or his position in life. I don't even think he's really worried about the fact that he might be completely disavowed as a religious leader because he's turning to this radical and widely rejected prophet, Jesus. He only cares about his dying daughter. And he knows that Jesus is his only hope. See, I would say Jairus had great faith in that moment. I think he believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. In fact, I think he believed it to the point that he was willing to risk everything for his daughter's sake. Now, if you think back through what we just read, you go, well, it doesn't tell us anything about Jairus having faith. All it really says is that Jairus pushed through the crowd and threw himself down at Jesus' feet. And I would say you're right until you keep reading. And if you skip down in the story to verse 36, you see something that gives us context for this whole story that's really important. Jesus has stopped here to talk to the woman who touched his robe, and everything is kind of stopped in the story, basically. He's taking time out of this journey to, to the home of Jairus. And Jairus receives word in that moment that his daughter has died. 
that they're too late. But I want you to look at Jesus' response to Jairus. This is verse 36 of chapter 5. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just have faith. Now we read that, and it doesn't matter whether you read it in New Living or NIV or any other number of translations, you almost always get that same feel, that just have faith. It's a present context. But the Greek word that's used here is a little bit bigger than that. It's the word pistuo, and it means, better translates, have faith, believe, but it best translates to keep believing. It's a very different tense of the verb, actually, in the Greek when you look back at that. And what Jesus is saying here is not find some faith or find belief, but what he's really saying is keep believing. Jairus had to have already had faith. He had to already believe in Jesus before he got to that point. And Jesus is saying keep believing. But even more importantly, this word doesn't refer to actions or a thing that you would do, but rather it refers to having belief in a person. And what Jesus is saying here is not believe in what I'm going to do, but he's saying keep believing in me. Keep believing in me. Our faith is not based on our experience, but it's based on the person of Christ. So Jairus comes to Jesus in faith, begging him to come to his home and heal his daughter, and Jesus goes with him, with the crowd following. Now I want you to pause there for a second and try to put yourself in the story in Jairus' shoes. Think about the position he holds. Think about the day and time he's living in. Think about all that's going on here, the position or the situation he's coming from. He's desperate, desperate for Jesus to get to his daughter. It's literally life or death. Time is of the essence. And they're slowed down by this crowd of people who are following along. Now, if I'm Jairus, I'm not a very patient man at this point. I'm ready to knock some people down and clear a path to get back to my house and to my daughter to make sure that Jesus can heal her and that everything is good. I don't care how excited you are to see Jesus. I don't care that you came to witness a miracle. I don't care that you came to listen to him teach. I only care about saving my daughter. Wouldn't you feel the same way? Your daughter's lying sick in bed to the point of death. As the story unfolds, it gets worse because not only is the crowd slowing him down, but then you have this scum-of-the-earth woman who sneaks up behind Jesus and touches his robe and stops the entire procession. Again, think about it from Jairus' perspective for a moment. He is the religious leader. He's like the guy that everybody looks to, to be the model, to be the example. This woman, on the other hand, she's unclean. She's been shunned from all society. She can't participate in any religious activities. In fact, for 12 years, she's not been able to participate in any activities. She's been separated from her friends, separated from her family. She can't even be with her husband because of her physical condition. She's completely isolated, completely separated, completely alone, totally apart from life as you and I might know it. Jairus, the most important man in town, compared to the woman who nobody talks to, but everybody talks about. You know what I mean? And Jesus stops for her. Now, if I'm Jairus, I just went from desperate to desperately angry and probably hopeless all at the same time. My daughter is dying. Time is of the essence, and we're pausing to talk to the scum of the earth woman. Jesus, my daughter is dying. Let's go. See, I don't care how great our faith may be. Isn't that kind of our normal human response 
when God doesn't do something on our timeline? Um, hello, I'm still waiting here. What are you doing? Why aren't you taking care of this? See, if I'm being honest, and I, I hate to admit this, I often find myself stuck in the thought pattern that says, Jesus will do that for you, but will he do it for me? Yes, I believe Jesus can heal. I believe he can provide financially. I've even seen him do it in my life. Yes, I, I believe that he can overcome this struggle or that struggle or this thing or that. And I've seen him do it. I've seen him do it for Stivey. I've seen him do it for Eric. I've seen him do it for my wife. I've seen him do it for all these people, but will he do it for me? I wonder how many times are we in the place where we're praying for something and it seems like everybody around us is getting answers to their prayers and we're still sitting there waiting and wondering and probably even doubting. I think that's probably where Jairus is. And even after he gets word that his daughter is dead, even after his situation goes from desperate to hopeless, we see Jesus saying, keep believing in me. Keep believing in me. Keep having faith. Jesus is hope when we're hopeless. And the truth is, I don't know that it's much different for the woman in the story. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Why do you think she's being so inconspicuous about how she comes up behind Jesus and touches his robe? You know, I've heard the story taught over and over and over, and every time I hear the story taught, it, it comes from a perspective that says, well, this was a woman that had such great faith that she knew if she just reached out and touched his robe, she'd be healed. And that's probably true. I wouldn't argue that. I don't think people are wrong for teaching that. But I can't help but wonder if there's more to the story. I mean, there, there's a lot to support that. I, I, I get it. You know, there was a tradition in that day that, that almost looked at something with healing to be more of a magical kind of thing, and she could have been a little warped in how she saw it. There was also a tradition even within the spiritual realm that said if, if someone was performing miraculous wonders and they were healing people, that if you would just touch their garment or if you would hold on to some piece of clothing that they had, that you could experience that healing. She may have believed that. Either way, it would have taken great faith. But I look at the story and I've got to wonder, is there more to the story than that? I mean, here's a woman who's tried everything. We're told that she had tried every remedy possible. She had gone to all these different doctors. It tells us she had run out of money. She had looked into all of the things that they had prescribed to her. And let me just tell you, if you do just a small amount of research on the remedies that the doctors were giving her in that day for what was wrong with her, it's absurd. It's things like carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a different kind of cloth, depending on whether it's summer or winter. How many of you are going to do that? They're just superstitions. The doctors were throwing out there saying, well, this will heal you. This will make you better. And she had tried it all. She had done everything. Nothing had made her better. In fact, she had gotten worse time after time. She's exhausted every effort, gone to every doctor, tried every remedy, exhausted all of her finances, and she finds herself poor, rejected, unclean, and still in pain and discomfort and embarrassment from her affliction. See, I look at her story, and I think the more likely truth is that she was probably sneaking up behind Jesus and touching his robe because she didn't want to draw attention to herself. She probably didn't see herself as worthy to be healed by Jesus. I'm confident that she didn't want to face the insults and the rejection of the crowd that she was 
used to facing all the time. She most definitely didn't want to be made a public spectacle by anybody. I mean, think about it. She already lived a life of complete humiliation and shame every day, 24-7. I think she probably looked at it as this was her last chance. Her last chance to be healed, her last chance to be accepted, her last chance to experience any form of life like you and I might know. And Jesus heals her with just the touch of his garment. But he doesn't just leave it at that, does he? He calls her out. I think the very thing that she was trying to avoid, the very thing that she didn't want, she did not want to be made known. And what does Jesus do? He calls and he says, who touched me? Now think about that. This is Jesus, fully God and fully man, still omniscient, still all-knowing, even in this moment walking the earth. I think he knew who touched him. The disciples jump on the bandwagon real quick. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus was very purposeful in this moment. Who touched me? And he looks around until she turns and kneels before him. See, I think he was asking the question because he wanted to invite her. He wanted to invite her to step out of her hiding and step into public view. He wasn't just healing her physically, but he wanted to completely restore her. He wanted to make a public declaration that she was no longer sick, no longer unclean, no longer to be shunned or isolated, no longer to be separated from everything the way she had been. She was now whole. And we see that happen over and over and over in Jesus' miracles. He not only offers physical healing, but he also offers spiritual and emotional healing. In fact, many of the times that we see Jesus heal... What happens? The first thing he does is say, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals physically. He starts with the spiritual and the emotional. Step back for just a second to like a 25,000-foot view and kind of compare and contrast these two stories. Think about how the Jairus and the woman are different. Jairus pushes through the crowd to get to Jesus. His approach is public, but yet it's personal. He expects Jesus to come and heal his daughter. The woman sneaks through the crowd trying to avoid detection. Her approach is very private and secretive, but yet it's also very personal. She's desperately hoping that touching Jesus will heal her. But honestly, I wonder what kind of expectations she held. In both cases, Jesus responds miraculously. I think the woman's perception of Jesus was probably a little twisted, if I'm just being honest. I think she probably was a little confused and didn't have good understanding of who Jesus was or what he was about or what he was doing. She had just heard all these amazing things and she went, I've tried everything else, why not? On the other hand, I think Jairus knew exactly who Jesus was. He had read and studied. He knew all about the coming Messiah. He had seen all the signs. He knew. But everybody in his religious circle... And all the peer pressure that he felt and everything that he knew that was going on in the day told him that he needed to reject this completely. And yet he looked at Jesus knowing he was his only hope. Interestingly, what I see that's similar is that both of them come to Jesus desperate. Both come humbly. Both come willing to risk everything, begging Jesus to heal 
The synagogue leader is willing to risk his reputation, his status, everything about himself. The lady's willing to risk being publicly humiliated again. And we see that Jesus heals. He does heal. And in response to their faith. He heals in response to their faith. And that's the key that I want you to see today. Jesus responded to the faith that was offered by both Jairus and this woman. Even when Jairus received word that his daughter was dead and that they were too late, Jesus says, keep believing. Keep your faith in me. And he ends up performing an even greater miracle by raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, proving his power not only to heal but also over death. And even in that moment, I think Jesus is responding to the faith of Jairus. He says to Jairus, keep believing, keep having faith. And apparently Jairus does, and Jesus responds miraculously. Now those are two really cool stories of faith, stories of miraculous healing, stories about Jesus showing up for somebody in desperate need. But then we flip the page and we turn into chapter 6. And we read the next part of today's passage and we see a completely different perspective. Jesus goes back to Nazareth. It's the place where he grew up, his hometown as a boy and as a young man. And we're told that he's rejected there. In fact, we read that the people were deeply offended when they interacted with him in the synagogue. Now, on one hand, Mark tells us that they were amazed by his teaching and all that they had heard about him. They were amazed at his, wis- his wisdom. But then... He goes on to inform us, and I'm going to put this in my own words the way I kind of understand it. Basically, they begin to try to rationalize everything. They're trying to kind of explain it away. You know, we know this guy. He grew up here. We know his mom. We know his siblings. We know the job that he held here in Nazareth. We know all these things about him. They might even be talking about, hey, we know Jesus when he was a boy and some of the goofy little things he did. How in the world did he grow up to be the Messiah? There's no way. They explain it all away. They forget everything that they've heard about his miracles and his teaching, maybe even some of what they've seen. They couldn't see beyond their logic and their misguided human understanding to have even an ounce of faith. And then we read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, he couldn't do any miracles among them. And it says that he was amazed at their unbelief. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus' power did not change one bit when he walked into Nazareth compared to what he had just done. Nothing about Jesus changed. He still held the power over nature, the demons, sickness, even death. Same Jesus The only thing that changed was the approach of the people. In the other two stories, there's this picture of faith. But in this one, there's no faith. There's only this group of people trying to figure it out on their own and see things in their own limited understanding. See, in the story of both Jairus and the story of the woman from chapter 5, the picture that's painted is one of a true childlike faith. Not questioning everything, not trying to explain it, not trying to figure it out, just believing. You see that all throughout the Gospels, especially that Jesus talks about to come with the faith of a child. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. But see, in this story in chapter 6, we see a group of adults doing what adults do best, trying to figure it all out on their own. 
trying to reason it and understand. See, I'd argue that every miracle Jesus performed while here on earth was done with purpose and was done in response to faith. He never just randomly healed someone physically. Now, you'll read through the Gospels, and there's times that you, you read across something, and you go, well, he just kind of healed them and went on. But usually, if you'll dig a little deeper and study into those stories, there's a lot more context involved in those settings. I think everything Jesus did was on purpose. And it was always done in order to heal them spiritually and to restore them, as well as just healing them physically. His power wasn't restricted in Nazareth, but rather there was no point for him to do the miraculous for a group of people that had already made up their minds that they didn't believe. It didn't really matter what Jesus did. One of the interesting things to me is the word translated as amazed here in verse 6 is more often translated as marveled or astonished, to marvel or astonished. It's the Greek word thamadzo. And basically it's saying Jesus was astonished by the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. Now, here's what's really interesting to me. We only see Jesus use this word twice in the Gospels. He uses it here, talking about he was astonished by their unbelief. And the other place we see it is in the story of the Roman officer. And if you remember that story, the Roman officer comes to Jesus and he says, my slave is dying, he's really important to me, will you just speak the words over him to heal him? And Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal him. And the Roman officer says, no, you don't need to come to my house. He said, I'm a soldier, I know how this works. My superior officers tell me what to do. I tell my men what to do. We just do it. It doesn't take any more than that. And I know that you are all powerful. All you have to do is speak the words. My slave will be healed. And Jesus uses the same word there to say that he marveled at or was astonished by this man's faith. You've got two complete opposite ends of the spectrum here. One case where Jesus marvels at the faith of a Roman officer. And one where he marvels at or is astonished by the lack of faith, the lack of belief in the people of Nazareth. It begs the question for me, how would Jesus respond to our faith? Would he marvel at our amazing faith? Or would he be astonished by our lack thereof? Do you approach him with a childlike faith that just keeps on believing that he can show up in your circumstances no matter what, even when it comes to the point of death? Or do you spend all your time and energy trying to explain and figure out and rationalize away the miraculous things of Jesus? Do you keep on believing and keep on asking no matter what? Or do you give up when Jesus doesn't show up when you think you should. James chapter 1 speaks pretty clearly to this, starting in verse 6. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do band you guys can come on up just this past week i was reading in matthew chapter 11 about where jesus denounces several towns that he's performed miracles in and there's no faith response from the people and he goes on to say that even the people of wicked sodom would have come to faith if he had performed the same miracles there 
that he had performed in these towns. Now think about that a minute. Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, the towns that were destroyed by God in the Old Testament because the people were so wicked. And Jesus says, if I had done the same miracles in Sodom that I have done here for you, they would have come to faith as wicked as they were. And yet you have witnessed these things and you still reject me. Who or what are you putting your faith in? Are you trusting in God alone or are your loyalties divided between God and the world like James talks about? Jesus showed up and did the miraculous in response to true faith. On the flip side, though, it's interesting that he instructed his disciples to go from town to town and the ones who didn't believe and didn't have faith, he said, shake the dust, knock the dust from your sandals and leave those places. Our faith response matters. I want to be a person of childlike faith. I want us to be a church where Jesus can do the miraculous in response to our faith. What about you? Where are you placing your faith? How do you think that Jesus will respond to your faith? Will he marvel at the greatness of it? Or will he be just astonished by the lack of it? If you want to talk or pray with somebody, I would encourage you to come over to Next Steps. We would love to talk with you this morning. I'm going to pray and the band's going to lead us in a couple songs. And I would ask you just to think about that. What does your faith look like? Do you have that childlike faith to trust in God that much that depends on him, that's willing to risk everything to throw yourself at his feet? Or is your faith one where you question everything and you rationalize and you try to explain it and figure it out and do it in your own strength? Jesus' power doesn't change, but our faith response matters. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the way that you continually reveal yourself to us in your word. I'm thankful for how over the last several weeks as we've dug through this book of Mark and and seen your words and your teachings and the many things that, that you're saying, God, how you've just revealed yourself to us in new and different ways. I'm thankful for this morning for the challenge that we've had placed before us about our faith response. God, I'm reminded that your power never changes. But this is a two-way relationship and you invite us all the time to, to be a part of it, to engage with you, to have faith in you, to place our trust and our belief in you so that you can work in our lives. We have to invite you in. God, help us to recognize that. Help us to approach you with that childlike faith that faith that is completely trusting that doesn't worry about the details that doesn't worry about the explanations that doesn't worry about all the things that get in the way but just looks to you God even as I've talked this morning I'm reminded of the story of Peter when the storm is raging around him and he sees you walking across the water and he jumps out of the boat to walk to you and as long as he's looking at you, his faith is strong and he can walk on the water but as soon as he starts to look at the wind and waves, he
us where so many of us fall. We look away from you and we're caught up in our circumstances and we're, we're caught up in all the stuff around us. Help us to keep our eyes on you and to keep our faith strong in you and you alone. Speak to our hearts now, God. In your name we pray.